Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you so much for listening. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. But uh, before we got into that, I wanted to read uh, a passage from Ecclesiastes. This is actually the opening passage of Ecclesiastes. And it says, uh, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So, okay. <clears throat> Today, we are talking about the Irishman, as I said, and I wanted to kick that off uh, by talking about uh, Ecclesiastes, which is a book that uh, a lot of people, I feel like it's, I feel like as a book, it's kind of misunderstood, but it's also so valuable uh, as far as the, the books of the Bible, because it really, uh, it doesn't, uh, it's not very subtle. Uh, it leads off with saying everything is meaningless. And a lot of people hear that and they are discouraged by it. And I guess understandably so, but, uh, but at the same time, I feel like it, uh, it should encourage, if you're, if your faith is in Christ, then it should encourage you. But, uh, but yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to set the tone before we got fully into any discussions of the Irishman, uh, because this is a film that I at this point, I would say I love when I first I, I watched it once and didn't really care for it. Uh, then it just stayed with me, just the the way it unfolds, the length of the film, uh, and then specifically the last 45 minutes just made me uh, it just stayed with me. And I just I was turning it over and over in my mind. So I watched it again and. Um, and at that point, I loved it. And then as I was preparing my notes for this episode, I started watching it again um, just to kind of refresh my memory. I watched it probably a month, month, uh, maybe like two months ago. I don't remember now. But uh, as I did that, uh, I found myself getting pulled into it. There's a definite rhythm, as there often is, 
with Martin, Scors- uh, Martin Scorsese films, uh, with his wonderful editor, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. And it's, it's a film that I, you know, it's interesting. I don't love Goodfellas. I don't love Mean Streets or Casino or The Departed. I, I respect all of them. Uh, but I don't really, you know, there are people that have said they return to Goodfellas over and over. And I can't imagine doing that because it's exhausting and it's stressful. And yes, it's occasionally funny, but it's just, uh, this story of, you know, these wise guys living lives of, uh, excess and violence and drugs and all of that. Uh, it's just not the kind of thing that appeals to me. Um, and there's a very manic energy, I think, to to many of those films that is certainly appealing in a lot of ways, but uh, it's not my kind of thing. I tended to like mob films that were a little bit more meditative. Certainly, The Godfather, uh, Miller's Crossing, even something like Donnie Brasco. And this feels like, I mean, the, the companion film for today is The Godfather Part Two, and this definitely feels like Scorsese sort of channeling Coppola, but not arbitrarily. He's doing it because of the story he's telling and the way he's telling it and who he is as a filmmaker now. Um, One thing that I am perpetually fascinated with is the films that directors make as they get older. Um, Because... They tend to be kind of, I guess you could say navel gazing if you want to be uh, sort of cynical about it, but it's more just they're thinking back as older people do. They're thinking back on their lives and wondering like, okay, well, what, what have I been doing? And not, not asking in a way like, oh my gosh, what have I like, uh, you know, Alec Guinness at the end of Bridge on the Requi, not like, what have I done? But they're more just like, okay, so let's take stock of, of what my career has been and the messages I've been sending to people and the stories I've been telling. And, you know, it's one of the things that I love about, um, the other side of the wind, which is the Orson Welles film that, uh, was finished, you know, 30 years after, uh, he died and was released on Netflix in 2018. Uh, he directed it, uh, and he was very passionate about it as he was getting older. Granted, Wells died when he was only 70. So he was in his sixties, but he was towards the end of his life. I think he probably knew that. Um, and when you see the film, you see that it's, it's a film about a, an older filmmaker who is having a hard time, who's a legend, but also has a hard time getting money for his movies uh, and seems to hate himself a little bit, but can't get out of his usual cycle. And it's hard not to look at that and think that maybe that's how Wells viewed himself. I would say it's very similar to Clint Eastwood when he made Unforgiven, which, you know, Westerns are what essentially made him. And then he makes this film that is much more nuanced and much quieter and has a certain morbid quality to it and a mournful quality to it. Uh, and then I would also this past year, along with the Irishman, we had Quentin Tarantino making once upon a time in Hollywood. And, you know, there are Tarantino fans that don't really like it that much because they think it's, you know, quote unquote boring or that nothing happens or whatever. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's about, uh, uh, an aging star who's trying to figure out where he fits, uh, as, as society moves on. And 
I don't think Tarantino is, is thinking of himself as being irrelevant, but I think he might be looking at like, well, Hollywood is getting, is changing and younger audiences might be much more interested in things like YouTube and TikTok. And I can say as someone who teaches college students, high school students, and middle school students, uh, yes, he's correct. They are more interested in that than they are feature length films. So, um, and there are other examples of this as well. I would say somebody like John Ford, he made the searchers in 1956 and he'd been making movies for like three decades by then. But, uh, and finally he, he makes a Western that deals with racism and I'd say colonialism and, and explores the idea that maybe like the, the taming of the old West wasn't quite such a, a great thing in every capacity for every person. So it's always interesting to me when an older director who's been working consistently for decades, uh, makes a film sort of within their preferred genre, if they do work in a genre. Uh, and that is one of the reasons that I do love the Irishman is, you know, my, my favorite Scorsese movies tend to be what I call the loner movies, movies like taxi driver, last temptation of Christ, bringing out the dead, uh, I mean, stuff that he often, that was often written by Paul Schrader, who as a director, I also like as well. So it it might be a function of him, but, uh, Scorsese making films about just like, usually just a man who just feels like he doesn't fit with the rest of the world. Those really resonate me, uh, resonate with me, not because I necessarily feel that I am like that, but, uh, I tend to respond to that more than his mob films, but he is definitely known more for his, his gangster pictures. And so for him to return to one after making silence and Hugo and the Wolf of wall street. Um, I mean, let's see. So this it was 2019. So it's 13 years after the departed, which is the mob movie that won him best director and picture and all of that. And so for him, and he's now in his late seventies. So for him to return to this, uh, it's, it's worth paying attention to. And sure enough for him to bring in De Niro after not working with him for a while, working with Pacino for the first time, bringing in, uh, Joe Pesci, who had essentially, uh, retired Harvey Keitel's in there who had acted in, uh, mean streets. Clearly there is an element of, of reflection, uh, in the film, just as, just as far as the facts of it, you know, uh, <clears throat> Like Al Pacino may never have, have worked with Scorsese, but he obviously was the face of the, the Godfather movies. And so, uh, it does, it, it, it felt like, uh, two forces finally like coming home, uh, and, and, uh, sort of a meeting of the minds type of thing. So, uh, so the film for those that don't know is based on uh, a true story. Uh, it's the story of Frank Sheeran, who is, uh, who is a house painter, uh, which is to say, which was a euphemism for uh, hitman, thug, whatever it is in the mafia. And so there was a book that he wrote or was written about him in which he reflected on his life as a mafia enforcer in Pennsylvania. And within that, he said that he was the one that killed Jimmy Hoffa. That has been disputed by people. Uh, looking to say that maybe Sheeran was just looking for some kind of hook for his book. I didn't mean to rhyme there. Take a look. 
Yeah. Um, but uh, that maybe he was trying to sort of puff himself up into something other than he was. But uh, but either way, it definitely got people's attention because Jimmy ha- the the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa is something that has been sort of a national mystery for a long time, and so uh, so Sheeran's story, and then the book that came out of it, and then the film that came out of it, and which shows like, all right, this is what happened to Jimmy Hoffa is something that I think is uh, of of interest to a lot of people, and. As far as the film itself, it sounds strange for a movie that's three and a half hours. I, I, I both do have a lot to say and don't have a lot to say. I could see this being one of our shorter episodes. Of course, every time I say that, it winds up being like, you know, two hours long, uh, historically. But, um, yeah, I, I wasn't disinterested in the movie going in, um, but I knew that I was not a big fan of, uh, Scorsese's films, uh, as, as, a as, a his, his gangster movies. Uh, and so when I watched it, but when I, when I started watching it, it did pull me in and I definitely did watch all of it. I was never bored. Um, but I just didn't really, I don't think I really totally understood what he was getting at. Uh, but then you get to the last, again, the last 30 to 40 minutes and it recontextualizes everything you've seen up to that point. And then when you watch every, when you watch it again, knowing where you're headed, then you really understand what he's doing. Uh, and you really appreciate it. And because he's telling Frank Sheeran's story over several decades from being a a young man who gets involved in the Pennsylvania mafia to being an old man who outlives everybody else and is just living in a nursing home. And so from a technical standpoint, you have to you have to have a production design that covers several decades. You need to have costume design that covers several decades. And, uh, one of the things that people often talk about with the movie, you need to find a way to have Frank and, uh, his boss slash friend, uh, Russell played by Joe Pesci and Hoffa. You need to find a way to show them throughout the decades as well. And there's always the possibility of, uh, having a younger actor play uh, Frank when he's younger and then go into uh, Robert De Niro when he's older. But Scorsese decided to do something different. And he, uh, we hear all about like digital de-aging and that sort of thing. Uh, I seem to recall, I think I'd seen it before. Um, I remember in X-Men, the last stand from 2006, I remember Brett Ratner made uh uh, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart look younger, but it also made them look very plastic. Like the technology wasn't there yet, but, uh, I do remember watching guardians of the galaxy part, uh, volume two and seeing a young Kurt Russell and thinking like, wow, that is pretty amazing. Uh, they really made him look like the Kurt Russell that we knew and, uh, made it look pretty organic, uh, pretty real at the same time. And so, uh, so Scorsese, spent, they spent a lot of money. Netflix put in a lot of money to digitally de-age De Niro and Pesci and Pacino and these other actors as well. Um, to not necessarily the greatest effect, by the way. Um, there are moments where it just looks wrong, um, specifically with De Niro. And in my opinion, the issue is his eyes. Uh, he is playing Frank Sheeran, who is 
an Irishman and has these blue eyes and De Niro does not have them. So when you see, uh, when you see these blue eyes in De Niro, it looks very strange and everything looks very false. Um, and so, and then, and just the, the, his face itself when he's younger, doesn't always look, it just, it doesn't always look fully rendered. Um, it looks a little bit digi, as uh, my wife would say. I think they do a great job with Joe Pesci. Uh, there are moments where, like, you can definitely see him getting older, but they don't make a huge change between uh, him when he's younger and him when he's older. Uh, and so I think they're trying not, they're not trying to do too much, whereas I think they are trying to do a little bit too much with De Niro. And it is distracting at first. Then you just sort of get used to it. And sure enough, as he gets older, you then it's like, all right, well, I don't have to worry about this anymore. I don't need to worry about this, uh, this not super great digital technology. And, uh, I don't know why I'm leading off with the stuff that, that could be better. Um, because like I said, I do love the movie, but, uh, but I guess I'm just trying to address some of the issues that people have had with it. And, uh, so one is the digital de-aging and then the other is the length of the film. Um, there are people that would wonder why this movie needed to be three and a half hours. And I can see where, I think you probably could tell this story in two, two and a half hours. Um, but I think when you're telling the story of somebody's life and if you give yourself permission as a filmmaker to just let the film be as long as it's going to be, then that allows you to really live in the moments that are the most important in this person's life. Whereas if it's, Hey, we got a lot of ground to cover in two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, so we got to hurry up and, and get going, but it's a film that often will slow down and just let these quiet moments happen between characters. And I really appreciate that. And it just, and again, there's a definite rhythm in it and it, it lulls you into that rhythm. Um, and I don't think if they had, if they were trying to like cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time, I don't think it would have the same rhythm. I think the three and a half hours allowed Scorsese a lot of freedom. Um, and it comes through and I find it invigorating. Um, even if this is from an energy level, like the lowest level of energy, uh, that Scorsese has shown in one of his gangster movies. But that's the other thing is it is told from the perspective we've, when we like we're first introduced to Frank as an older man in a nursing home. And then he starts telling us the story. And so the, the rhythm and the pacing feels like an old man telling you a story as opposed to like, and then we saw this and then this happened like, uh, like a young man with, with uh, crackling energy as, which I think we would see in stuff like mean streets or Goodfellas. This is a very different type of film for Scorsese. One that is rooted in the idea of age uh, and getting older and that sort of thing. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, when people talk about the, the digital de-aging, it is a little bit distracting, but you also get used to it. Um, and then the length I think is not a problem at all. So as far as the, what people often talk about primarily when they talk about things they like is the acting. Um, and I'll say that I myself have never been a giant fan of Robert De Niro. Um, it has never bothered me when someone say, when someone says that like, well, no, when someone, whether they're talking about like Jack Nicholson 
or George Clooney or Julia Roberts or whatever. And they say, oh, they're just playing themselves. Uh, I've never liked that criticism. Uh, It has never really resonated with me because when it comes right down to it, it's not about, are they doing an accent? Are they unlike themselves? It's, am I, am I buying the emotion that the actor is selling? And if the answer is yes, then that means they're doing a good job. Uh, but I think that because of who Robert De Niro is as an actor and has been, there is a a quality to him, especially as he got older where, uh, he, he had kind of a a lower energy and I just didn't find him as uh, very dynamic. Don't get me wrong. When he was younger, stuff like the King of comedy or raging bull or taxi driver, um, that was something that it was really like you never knew what he was going to throw at you. And that was really exciting and kind of scary at times. You know, he would go on to play Max Cady in Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear. Uh, and he brought a lot of energy to that. And then I think he just sort of settled into his thing and occasionally has been able to make that really work for him in something like Analyze This or uh, The Silver Linings Playbook. But, uh, but yeah, I've never... I feel like I, it's been a while since I've seen him like really put in some, uh, put in enough effort for me to really respond to. Uh, and in this film, I think he, I think he is, I think he is finding little moments within his character, uh, in which he doesn't know what is expected of him. He doesn't know what he should do. And, those, those really come through. And that's the thing is De Niro is an imposing enough actor that when you see him not know what to do, you yourself or me like, well, if he doesn't know, then I don't know either. And you suddenly get really uncomfortable. And that's the thing is De Niro often plays mob bosses and that sort of thing. Um, so for him to play a guy who is constantly, uh, reporting to the people that are, that are higher up, uh, maybe because he's a little bit, uh, I won't say dim, but that might be the word for it is that he's, he just doesn't think the way the higher up guys do. And so he is kind of always trying to figure things out. And, uh, and I think De Niro, it's not merely that he is trying to figure things out, but also there is an emotional component to his performance, especially as the film goes on where he's, he's dealing with things that he hasn't really felt before or things that he hasn't allowed himself to feel before. And I think De Niro is doing, really, really great work. Um, there was talk of him being nominated for best actor, uh, and he wasn't, uh, because it was a very crowded field. And on one hand, I understand why he wasn't on the other. I think he's doing the best work he's done in a long time, maybe some of the best work of his career, uh, in the film. And so kind of is a shame that he got sort of overlooked in, as opposed to like Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, both of whom were nominated for supporting actor. Uh, Joe Pesci, it's, you know, he was in Raging Bull. He was in Goodfellas for which he won an Oscar. He was in Casino, always playing sort of this crazy uh, character, a a character who's pure instinct. He's like a little bulldog um, and is just a bundle of violent energy. And here he actually plays the exact opposite of that. He plays a guy who is very soft spoken, very quiet, very patient. um, And you really it's, it's hard not to it play. He plays a, a real guy named uh, Russell Buffalino and it's hard not to see Russell as kind of like, uh, just a nice uncle or, or, ha, or like with a grandfatherly quality, but he is still dangerous. Um, and I think it's, I, I like his choice to play the character 
with a, to play him smaller because I think he realized like, well, Hey, I have power. My character is in charge of a lot. And so why should I have to, why play dangerous when I can just know that I am? Um, and I think that really comes through and it's a really, he has a lot of really wonderful moments and they're all very quiet. They're all very small, but he's doing some really great, uh, some really great work in the film. Then we get to Al Pacino who on one hand is doing is he plays Jimmy Hoffa and Jimmy Hoffa was a very charismatic guy that could get people to, to follow him into battle uh, as a union leader. And so we see that kind of charisma, the kind of thing that gets him uh, leadership positions. But, you know, I, I know that this, maybe I'm being a stickler, but um, Jimmy Hoffa had a very specific way of speaking. Uh, there was a movie in, in 1992, I think, called Hoffa, in which Jack Nicholson played the character, and he tried to adopt it. I don't know exactly what kind of accent it is. It might be kind of a kind of a Chicago accent. There's a sort of, it kind of has that clipped sort of thing. Um, and uh, Nicholson does it throughout in Hoffa, and I think he does a great job. And then when we are introduced to Al Pacino as Hoffa, um, he's doing it as well. And then that just fades away. And then it's just Pacino doing his usual thing, sounding like he's from New York. And while I think emotionally, he's doing really good work with the character and playing this guy who is his own worst enemy in a lot of ways, because he is a little bit too high on himself. And when eventually we see him get killed, he has no idea it's coming. And not just historically, it's not just that we know it's coming, uh, because we know that Hoffa disappeared and was likely killed by the mob. It's not merely that it's also that just from the film itself, we can tell like this guy thinks that he is untouchable and he is not, and he is about to find out and it's going to be terrible. Uh, and so I think Pacino is doing a really great job of taking a guy who is frustrating in that way, but you're still, and you still know that here it comes. We all know where we're headed and yet it still is a, dreadful, terrible thing and a heartbreaking thing when it does happen. Um, partially because I love the way that his, his death is handled, which is he's killed. And then, uh, his killer who is De Niro in the film, um, his killer leaves and we just stay on Hoffa's dead body in the house. And I love that image. I mean, it's very sad, but it really does play into what I think Scorsese is doing with the film itself, which is talking about the nature of mortality and the nature of fame or power or control or money or any of these things, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, they, they talk about it in the film that like, Hey, he was, he was huge. Everybody in the country knew who he was, but in the end, when he got, when he gets shot, he's still just a, he's just a dead body laying in a living room and that's it. And I think that's, and the longer the camera lingers on that and the quiet of that, uh, the more I think it really hits home what Scorsese is doing, that he is he is showing the tail end of people who have been powerful, uh, people who've done things their own way. Um, and then when we get to the the final image of the film, Frank is he's in uh, he's staying in a nursing home. Uh, he started talking to a priest and seems to really be interested in what he is saying and really be interested in like the nature of forgiveness and the nature of God and redemption and all of that. 
And so uh, clearly there probably is some regret going on there. Uh, but what's more is that Frank is alone. His family is not with him. He's just sitting in there talking with this priest. And then the priest leaves and he's sitting there alone, just like uh, Jimmy Hoffa was lying there alone. Um, there's there's a real um, kind of existential quality to the film, this, this suggestion of uh, that it doesn't matter how surrounded by people you might be and they could be people that adore you, they could be people that fear you, whatever it is, uh, that you still in your own way wind up alone, uh, which is of course a very sad idea, but I do think that Scorsese is really, uh, the film does remind me, I almost had to be the companion. Uh, it really does remind me of unforgiven in a lot of ways. Just this idea of, okay, let's re-examine uh, this world because we saw in unforgiven, we saw, uh, the man with no name and in, in the, the good, the bad, and the ugly and uh, fistful of dollars and all that. We saw pale rider and high plains drifter and all these things where, uh, certainly Eastwood was, his, his demeanor was kind of the same all throughout, but, uh, he solved everything through violence and then it just stayed solved. And then you get to unforgiven and, Violence certainly adds an air of finality to things, but it doesn't actually solve anything because the people that live, whether it be the grieving uh, family of a, of a victim or the perpetrator, they have to live with this. And so it doesn't solve anything. And it doesn't even it's not even really truly final because the, the fact of it goes on. And that is what this uh, film reminded me of. So. Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. I really, really, I really love the movie. Um, and so I, I, when I started rewatching it to, to, you know, get ready for this, um, I stopped probably about 30 minutes in and I, it was difficult for me to do. I actually want to go back, uh, and watch it again, which would be the third time, uh, in two or three months. And that is a time commitment, but it's, uh, it's still just something that I, that I enjoy watching, which is a weird word to use because the film isn't really enjoyable in the traditional sense. It still does have the, the Scorsese sense of humor, um, which you'll find in Goodfellas and the Wolf of Wall Street, like Scorsese you wouldn't think it because the movies that he makes are often very violent or, or they have kind of a, a, a moralism to them, but they are often very funny. And this film is no different, but this one is very deadpan in its humor. Uh, so much so that you might not even realize what it's doing until uh, a while after. But, uh, so the film was nominated for a number of Oscars. It didn't actually win any, uh, but it was nominated for best picture director, supporting actor for Al Pacino and, uh, uh, Joe Pesci adapted screenplay, cinematography, costume design, production design, editing, and visual effects. Um, I do find it interesting that they did nominate it for visual effects, even though people like myself say that the visual effects were a little bit janky, but, um, but yeah, so the companion film is the 1974 movie, the Godfather part two directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen it at this point, but it's the further, I was about to say adventures that feels wrong. Um, the further story of Michael Corleone played by a young Al Pacino who in the first film made in 1972 was a soldier coming back from world war two 
not wanting to get involved in the family business, which he knew was illegal, uh, and then just getting pulled in and then taking over. And it turns out he's much more ruthless maybe than anybody in his family could be. Uh, and this is just more of that. And I think it's a beautiful continuation of the story while also doing something that one wouldn't expect, which is we're telling the present story of Michael. And then we also go back to the past and we see a young Vito, um, originally played by Al Pacino, but now played by a young Robert De Niro for which he won best supporting actor. Uh, so we see Vito as he is starting to get involved in organized crime and starting to establish himself as a low level crime boss and what's interesting is we see his struggle as oddly noble, uh, maybe because like, oh, he's from the old country and he's just trying to just trying to eke out a living for himself. And he f- strikes out against the 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 very corrupt, very terrible crime boss that is responsible for the deaths of uh, members of his family and has been terrorizing the community. So he kills him, which on one hand is like, Hey, great. That's, that's fun. Um, I don't know why I said fun. That probably doesn't apply, but, uh, but we're definitely on board with it. And so we look at him, but then we look at the complete moral corruption of Michael, which happens over the course of this film where he, uh, he lashes out against his wife he orders the death of his own brother. Uh, granted, his brother betrayed him and did almost get him killed. Um, so there is there is that. There's a an element like the trust was already broken, but he does all of that. And so we look at that, and we can I think we genuinely condemn Michael. We're not really on his side. But then Vito, both the way De Niro plays him, the way he's written, but then also when we think of the Vito from the first Godfather, played by Marlon Brando, we think of like, oh, it's a bygone era. And that that veto, he had a code of ethics and all that sort of thing. And wh- what I think uh, Coppola is doing is he's suggesting like, no, you, all of this is linked. You can't talk about how great Vito was when he's killing people and he is paving the way for the complete moral corruption of his own family, including Michael, like Michael would not be where he is if not for Vito. And I know that there are some people that look at, and I, and I genuinely think that that is what Coppola is trying to do. I don't think that's, I don't think it's incidental. I think he's trying to paint a nostalgic view of Vito, but I think he's playing, he's playing that up for a very specific purpose, which is to undercut that and suggest that, yeah, this is violence is a cycle and it just is constantly perpetuating itself. And so, uh, Godfather part two, I think I still prefer the first one partially because I do think that Brando is such a force of nature, not to mention James Caan, both, both of those characters die in the first, uh, uh, in the first film. So they're, they're not around for the second, uh, outside of a flashback. But, uh, I think those characters do, uh, and I think I prefer a more streamlined story. So I think I prefer the first one to the second, but there are a lot of people that say Godfather part two is better. Um, and I don't think I agree, but I can also understand where they're coming from because it is more ambitious. And I think thematically it's trying to do more, but, uh, <clears throat> But yeah, and, and it's worth noting that in both cases, you, you, in, in the case of, uh, the Irishman 
and the Godfather part two, our main character is seen sitting by himself, uh, alone, having been abandoned by his family, having driven away his family, having killed his family, whatever it is. And this idea of like, of striving so that he can make a better way for his family or whatever it is, whatever he tells himself, uh, that that actually is the exact thing that, that makes his family resent him. And it's a Godfather part two really is a marvelous movie in, in a number of ways. Al Pacino, I think is doing really great work. Uh, he was nominated for best, uh, uh, best actor that year. He was nominated for best supporting actor for the first Godfather. And I think that's incorrect. I think he's the lead of that movie as well. But, um, but I understand they wanted to have Mar- uh, they wanted Brando to be the sort of the face of the film. Uh, and sure enough, he did win lead actor in 1972. So, um, so yeah, he won lead actor for, pl- for playing Vito and then De Niro played a young Vito and he won best supporting actor. And so appropriately this past year, Joaquin Phoenix won best actor for playing the Joker. And then Heath Ledger won uh, best supporting actor for playing the Joker in the dark Knight. And I seem to recall reading that like both like Vito Corleone and the Joker, like the only fictional characters that uh, people that more than one person uh, has won an Oscar for portraying. Um, probably something that I could look up. And again, it's fictional character because I'm sure there are various queens and kings and presidents and generals and that sort of thing that uh, have gotten people Oscars. But as far as fictional fictional characters, mostly those two. Um, but anyway, so uh, so I wanted to to talk very briefly. We, we kicked things off with with Ecclesiastes. And the reason that I wanted to is because uh, I wish I could say that it started with this started from a thought that I had, but a uh, friend of the show, Jason Eakin had seen the Irishman first and he incorporated the term ecclesiastical into his description. And so that was just in my mind, uh, even when I saw the film for the first time and sure enough, when I did see it and I saw the film in its entirety and then I watched it again, uh, I think Jason, Jason is right on, um, from a, certainly from a Christian standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, uh, this idea of these characters chasing money and power and all of these things for reasons that aren't always completely clear. That's one of the things that really is is interesting about the Irishman is that uh, he does have a family. And when he's asked uh, why he would do the things that he did, he would sort of mumble something about trying to keep his family safe or whatever, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um but you never quite know exactly why he's doing what he's doing. And he becomes very good friends with Jimmy Hoffa. And yet that doesn't stop him from shooting Hoffa twice in the head. Uh, and you don't know why he does that either. You don't exactly, you have to sort of figure it out. Uh, and I, I kind of like that. I don't think that's a flaw. I think that is this idea that we, sometimes we do things just because it's expected of us. Uh, we do things maybe that we ourselves would not want to do or that we would condemn ourselves for. Um, and we may not even totally know the reason why. Um, but, uh, I think the idea of, of it being of like falling into a rut, um, and just doing what we always do without really questioning it until after the fact, I think there's an element of that to the Irishman. Um, so, 
so the idea of Ecclesiastes is, as, as I was reading, it's this, it's this weird, um, juxtaposition of eternity and the idea that, that nothing really, that some things don't end, you know, uh, looking back at the passage that we were talking about, you know, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and it sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. First off, I think that's a really beautiful language. I love the I love the way Ecclesiastes is written. But what what it's talking about there is this I, this constant cycle, this ebb and flow of time, and that. These and it's talking about the earth. It's talking about the sun and wind and these elements that are going to outlast us. You know, it says generations come and generations go. It's not even talking about like individuals. It's talking about entire generations of people. Yeah, they come and go, but the earth is still here. Uh, and then later in the book, it talks about all the different things that people try to do um, to. I don't know, to make themselves feel good, to find some kind of identity, whatever it is. Uh, and one thing that I love is that every time Ecclesiastes says, hey, foolishness is a, is a dumb way to live, like chasing after uh, stupid, pl- uh, minimal pleasures, that's a dumb way to live. Incidentally, wisdom is also meaningless. Like it's, it, it sets up, it knocks down the obvious targets. Any, any one of us would say that, yes, of course, stupidity is not a good thing to be. Uh, stupid is not a good thing to be. But uh, what Ecclesiastes says is like, yes, I agree with you. Incidentally, wisdom and intellect, those also don't really mean anything because they're going to pass away just like everything else. Um, and I think that's what you... I think that's what you get with the Irishman and I think with Godfather part two is these guys who've done all of these things, uh, to give their lives meaning or whatever it is. And then at the end they realize like, I still, I'm still old and I still, I'm still not satisfied. Um, and so these characters constantly compromise their morality, um, even the general, maybe even the general idea of morality in order to at the, at the sort of at the core of almost any mafia movie is the idea of power. And so, uh, so these characters, they compromise their morality in order to get or hold on to their power. Um, but in some cases like this, uh, to go back to this idea of what Frank said, um, they do it for this, this sort of nebulous idea of safety. Um, at one point, Frank, uh, says that he was just trying to keep his family safe, uh, to which his daughter asks safe from what? And he doesn't really have an answer, which leads, which sort of allows us to think like, yeah, what is he trying to keep his, his family safe from? And my guess, because we do have a brief moment where he's talking about being in the war and being really scared and just trying to survive and all of that. Um, but he does say like, he goes, Hey, don't, don't anyone who says they're not scared, don't believe them. And so it's like, all right. So he's admitting to being scared. That's worth noting. Um, and so when he, when you have somebody who admits being scared and just being willing to do anything they can to get out of a certain situation, and then they do these terrible things, um, to keep their family safe. It's like, okay, so there's something going on there. I I'm, I'm, 
I think we can draw a, a line between the two. Um, so my my guess would be that Frank is trying to keep his family safe from the world. Okay, now that's of course a very big idea. So what I what I would say is the unknown, the stuff that you can't control, the stuff that you can't plan for, the stuff you can't predict, the stuff that just sort of plagues uh, our mind. Um, you know, we try to control this through money or power or intellect or force. Uh, but none of it can ever really keep us safe or keep the, the people that we love safe. You know, it doesn't matter how much, how smart you are, how good looking you are, how much money you have, you might still get cancer and there's nothing you can do about that. Or there might be an earthquake and there's nothing you can do about that. And even if there was, you're still going to just die. And I know that's, that's uh, maybe a bit reductive, but, um, but we try to, we try to stave off this idea of, um, this idea of like inevitability and this idea of powerlessness. Um, and in the meantime, we've sacrificed so much of ourselves, um, that we might, I think the issue with Michael Corleone or Frank Sheeran is that they don't even really recognize themselves anymore. They just, they wind up at the end of their lives being like, how did I get here? And did I even get the thing that I was trying to achieve? Um, so to go back to this idea of like Ecclesiastes, I think people, they look at Ecclesiastes and they look at this idea of everything is meaningless and they find it very depressing. Like I said, um, but I think it ultimately comes down to this idea that what's really meaningless is our attempt to outrun inevitability. It's not saying that any, that like intellect is bad. Um, cause I think I, cause even Ecclesiastes says that like, it's better to be wise than foolish, but in the end, both are meaningless in and of themselves. One is better than the other. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's the thing that, that can, that can save you, you know, death or, you know, or ruin, uh, eventually it comes for everybody. They could be, it doesn't matter if they're rich or poor or smart or dumb or beautiful or ugly. Um, you know, to put your hope in any of those things, uh, which they're limited and they're going to pass away eventually. Um, it, that is meaningless. That is foolishness. Um, the only way Ecclesiastes says, and it's worth, and again, it's worth noting that, um, that Frank at the end of, of the Irishman is talking to a priest and seems to really be talking to him. He doesn't, it's not, I don't think it's a situation where he's like, okay, I'm at the end of my life. I lived my, I lived life the way I want to. And now it's time to try to also get into heaven. I think he's genuinely reflecting on the choices that he has made. At least I hope so. Um, there is a, a scene shortly before when Russell played by Joe Pesci, uh, he is, he is seeing a priest and Frank is kind of mocking the idea of that. And Pesci's like, he goes, just wait, you'll, you'll see. And I think that you'll see is like, Hey, we're close to the end. And I realized like nothing that I did kept me from growing older and from eventually dying. So what about, what did I even do? And so I think Joe Pesci's character has, has sort of, started to look inward and, and sees nothingness or sees meaninglessness, um, or whatever. But, um, so I think the film, 
So I think Ecclesiastes and I think even the film itself to a certain extent, because again, uh, as we've talked about in the past, uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, before he became a filmmaker, he wanted to be a priest. And I don't think that instinct ever went away. I don't know what his spiritual beliefs are. I think he does believe in God. I think he believes in the concept of eternity. And I think he re- I think he believes that the only way to like truly stave off this feeling of helplessness um, or hopelessness is to put our faith in the one thing that doesn't pass away, uh, something that doesn't decay, which obviously is God, um, who isn't merely eternal, but his characteristics are also eternal. And something I was thinking about earlier today is, uh, this is, you know, this is a biblical idea. It's been in a number of songs and it's the idea of that God's love endures forever. It's not merely that God endures forever. Uh, it's that his love does. And so, you know, these characters, they steal, they murder, they hurt people, they're corrupt, what they do, whatever they have to do, um, so that they can have some, they can feel like they have some level of control over their lives, Um, but they still wind up in prison or an old folks home, or they wind up dead. One thing that Scorsese does that I love in this film. Um, and it's, it's a little bit jarring. You're not sure why he's doing it at first. And then he does it consistently is that there are characters that will be introduced to, and then the, the frame will freeze. And then it will tell us like, there'll be words on the screen that says how this person dies. And it, it's usually a very violent death. And what's interesting is the first time they do that is with Harvey Keitel's character, who is not in the film very, very long, but he's like the big boss. And he is seen as like, all right, this is the guy that is in charge. This guy runs everything. And then we get a freeze frame. It's like, yeah, he was shot uh, in the face waiting outside his house in his car in 1980. And so, and then it does that throughout is it shows these, these characters, uh, who seem to have some level of, of power, some level of control. And then it says like, yeah, they still died and died in a way that was, com- that was often quite terrible and completely out of their control. Whatever power you might think they have now, uh, they certainly didn't have it in the moment when they were uh, being shot in the face. Um, so, you know, so like Frank, or if you want to go with Michael Corleone, you know, they still wind up old and alone and thinking about all the things they did, um, to try to avoid the exact place that they are. And I really, you know, I'm not old, but I feel old. I'm coming up on 38 uh, which I recognize is not very old, but, at, but I will say that, you know, uh, as I've said on this show many times, probably ad nauseum to the point where you're tired of hearing about it. So my father passed away, uh, in 2002 at age 50. And while 38 is still a ways off from 50, it's getting closer. And I don't officially see that as an expiration date, but I do see that like I have a similar body type to my dad and I stress out the same way he did and I worry. And so like I need to, so there are things that like I need to get in better shape. I need to find a better way to deal with my stress so that I don't die at 50. But that's the other thing is even if I don't, even if I make it all the way to 70, 
um, it's going to happen eventually. And it's going to be very sad when I die or when any of my friends die or if Jen dies, uh, you know, before me or whatever, it's going to be very heartbreaking, but there's also an inevitability to it. And if that, if that's inevitable, like, yes, you want to try and push it back as far as you can, because maybe you want to hang around for a while for your loved ones, but, uh, but it's going to happen eventually. And so, uh, while you might want to enhance your quality of life while you're here through money or health or whatever it is, that is all totally understandable. But in the end, the th- like we're still pretty powerless because we can't control whether we die or not. And by the way, we're going to die. I don't know even why I said why, whether we die or not, it's going to happen. And we have no control over when that happens. Um, and there is a sadness to that. And there are plenty of people that would say, hey, this is the only life you live, so you might as well live it on your terms. But at the same time, if you look at these movies, these are characters that are living on their terms. And do we really want to be that? Um, the answer is probably no. We still want to live moral lives. But then what is the point of living a moral life if that is meaningless? If you're still going to wind up dead, who cares? You know, there is a there is a, a moment in uh, Scorsese's uh, Departed. It's a pretty early moment where Jack Nicholson's character he plays a, a, a mob boss, and he says, "You know, when I was young, you could be a cop or a criminal, but what I say is, when you're staring down the barrel of a loaded gun, what's the difference?" So he, what he's ultimately saying is like mortality throws everything into very sharp relief, and you come to realize how how useless or I guess meaningless, uh, your life decisions can be. What's the point if you're a cop or a criminal, if someone's going to shoot you either way? Um, so why, why wouldn't you just live the life you want to live and, uh, do whatever you want? And so I think Ecclesiastes is ultimately saying like, yeah, uh, these, these attempts that we have, uh, these attempts that we make, to improve our lives or improve ourselves or whatever, or anything that we do that we find our definition. And it's like, yeah, that definition is going to end when you do. And so what's the point of any of it? And again, that's why I think people find it depressing. But if there, if it isn't an end, if, if there is something that actually does go on and it's not merely God, but it's God's love and his, forgiveness and his acceptance and all of that. If that in fact does go on forever, then that can be something that we use to define ourselves. And yes, it's not a thing that we control, but it is a thing that is promised to us if we just latch on to it. You know, the 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 metaphor that I often use is is you're you're next to a ship And you're just in the water in the middle of the ocean and you're just like thrashing about and you're about to drown. And then somebody throws out uh, a ring, uh, a a lifesaver, and you can grab it and then they'll just like haul you on in. Um, And so many of us, I think, continue to like struggle and be like, no, it's fine. I'll just I'll just I can I can tread water. I'll be okay. I don't need to don't trouble yourself or it could be a more defiant thing and say like, I don't need your, your lifesaver or whatever it is. Um, and it was like, no, we'll just, and even if we are treading water, eventually you get tired and you, you will sink unless you grab, grab onto this thing that is perpetually offered. And then it pulls you onto the boat and then you're on the boat 
and you don't have to worry about drowning anymore. You don't have to worry about, you know, are my legs getting tired? Are my arms getting tired? And how long am I going to be able to keep this up? You don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, it is being kept up for you by the one thing that does not fade. Uh, the one thing that does not decay. So, uh, you know, in American culture, we, we tend to like really romanticize criminals because they, they, or a certain type of criminal because, you know, Hey, they do things their own way. You know, um, I remember back in film school, but also just in life, like seeing people with like the, the Al Pacino Scarface, uh, like t-shirts and that sort of thing. And they, and I remember asking somebody like, why do you, why do you have that? Like, do you, do you like this character? And like, yeah, I like him. And I said, and I asked why this was a coworker of mine when I worked at Blockbuster in Chicago many years ago. Um, and I said, why do you, do you like him? And he's like, because he just does things completely his own way. He doesn't let anybody tell him what to do. And I was like, yeah, but then, uh, he gets shot to death. Um, do, do what is it? Uh, John Mulaney has like, uh, Scarface dies uh, doing a comical amount of cocaine. Um, it's like, he's like, he, yeah, he does things his own way, but that actually causes him to die young and die violently and horribly in a way that was probably avoidable. Um, and, so, but that's the thing is in that moment, even I was locking into this idea. It's like, well, he should have lived longer, but even if he had been along a law abiding citizen, he's still going to die. And so why, why wouldn't he, uh, be the biggest cocaine dealer in uh, Florida or whatever it is? Um, so yeah, I, I feel like I'm probably talking in circles a little bit. Uh, in the end, I'm just talking about where do we get our identity from? What is it like, what are we willing to do to exercise some type of control over our lives so that we don't feel so scared all the time? We don't feel at risk all the time so that we feel safe. Um, and are those things actually going to keep us safe? Um, and then what is that we want to be kept safe from? Like, these are all questions that I think are very important to answer. And, um, being a Christian, obviously, I believe that there's only one thing that, that doesn't go away. And only one thing that promises to embrace you and love you forever. And that is of course God. So, um, anyway, these are the things that I was thought that I thought about when watching, uh, the Irishman and they are the things I will continue to think about when I uh, go and watch it immediately after I'm done recording. So, um, Anyway, uh, any comments that you might want to leave, you're welcome to do so in the comment section. You can always tweet at me at more lessons. You can follow us, uh, or like us on uh, Facebook, uh, at more than one lesson. Um, just a reminder about, uh, my documentary, real redemption, the rise of Christian cinema. Uh, we do have a release date, which will be March 4th. So if you go to faith life TV, where my uh, nine part series, faith and filmmaking is currently, um, so if you go to Faith Life TV on March 4th, you can uh, you can subscribe or you can get, I think, two weeks free and uh, you can watch the documentary. I'm fairly happy with it and I think you would probably enjoy it. So anyway, uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. I don't know what the next episode will be or when uh, it will be, but I will try to make it sooner rather than later. But uh, once again, thank you so much for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.